The opinions and views expressed in this video are purely for entertainment purposes and not for investment advice. Good morning, Jack of all trades, or is it afternoon now? Sorry, I just woke up. <laughs> but welcome. It's uh, we're back again with Kaylin and Sam, as our producers always. Brendan once again is being an asshole in Florida, enjoying life. <laughs> yeah, doing all that fun stuff while we're stuck. He's either drunk on a beach or like a racetrack right now. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, um, Kaylin, you had some setups you wanted to show today. Yeah, so I was going to try and show this last week, but like we said, our, our Google Meets thing is getting cheap on us, so they only give us like an hour of screen share time. Um, so I basically wanted to show just kind of like um, front side versus back side of trades and uh, just kind of like for anybody that's beginning or anybody that's advanced, this is like a really kind of easy way to figure out whether you should be focusing short side or long side. Um, so I wanted to show, I don't know, David, what do you think? Should I, should I, should I do AMC just because so many people are looking at it or? Oh, absolutely. You're, okay. you're probably going to explain it to some people that are, that are in it. So it's going to be useful. All right. all right let me just get all these off of here first where are we okay so this is i think i'm on the 60 minute yeah so i'm on the 60 minute uh line chart right here um line charts always the best i find to, to draw your levels and draw your uh trend lines and everything like that so i know i've said a bunch of times on this show i'm not a huge fan of the horizontal trend lines but this is when they kind of come in handy um the only reason i say that is because i find horror or sorry um diagonal yeah diagonal ones yeah. the reason i say that is because i find diagonal ones are like really open to interpretation like depending yeah. where you where you latch them on like everybody could be getting different ones so like that's why i like horizontal lines better so like i usually when i'm playing charts i usually play off the horizontal lines but i'll use the diagonal lines as kind of like a rough indicator of front side versus back side um so here we are on amc this is the line chart here so basically what you're trying to determine when I say front side versus back side is like the front side of the move is essentially like when everybody's buying the stock, they're pushing it up like it's strong, everybody's focused on it. And then the back side of the stock is kind of like when everybody's sort of lost attention, it's like broken under its trend line, it's starting to kind of sell off, like shorts are taking over that sort of thing. Um, so right here, if you look, you know, if you look back here on AMC, this is kind of like when the run started to take off. So on this one it's kind of kind of interesting because there's a couple different ways you can do it right and it depends on like what your risk tolerance is and everything so um what i would do is basically draw a trend line here so essentially you want to find like wherever the run started and then just draw your line up from that point so like down here is kind of like where the run started and then like that would be you know roughly where i'd be looking at for like the full front side of the move so like everything up here i would consider like generally front side right if you look back here like that kind of ties in pretty close with this like it's hard to it's hard to get it exactly on this on this big of an angle but you know you're probably looking at something like that right and then you can see like over here when it broke down you kind of got that little bounce off this line cut back under so this this is what i would consider like the main front side of the move here essentially like down from 12 bucks you know we had this big run up um so everything up here is kind of you know, in, in layman's terms, this is like a void on the short side for the most part, right? And then once it gets over here where we are now, like this is where you can be comfortable basically shorting every single pop. Um, but in the, in the shorter term, because these things, obviously, you know, you don't wanna have to wait like three weeks to get into these plays. What you can do is you can take um, shorter, you know, shorter front side. So if you go, you know, something like this, maybe where we're here, and draw that up you can see you know if we start here then we got you know touches there comes way up touches here again and then it comes down so this is kind of backside again right 
So at this point, you know, this is, this is just kind of like a slow sell-off. I think back here at this point now, you can look to sell in the pops, right? So if you did want to short it here, um, this is where the horizontal lines come in handy. So if you got short under here, you know, I'd be looking at, say, these two tops right here, right? You know, these two, you had two tops here, and then it came down at base two times on here, and then it sold under. So for me, if I was going to short this, you know, I'd use this horizontal line as my actual level. And then my diagonal is kind of like just my rough determination of front side, back side. And then if you're above, so this line down here, this is our main front side indicator, right? So everything up here overall is still where the longs are in control. So if you are shorting on these types of moves here, whether the, you know, call them the steeper front side moves or whatever you want to call them, um, these are the ones that you don't want to be super greedy. Like we're not trying to fade this thing from, you know, 50 bucks all the way back down to 12. These are the ones where you just take it, you know, like line to line, as I say. And what, what I mean by that is basically, you know, this is our line here. So we broke this. I'd be looking to cover just into the next main bottom, which is this right here. Right. So you take that and you cover down. So just line to line. Right. That's why I like my horizontals. And they both based, you know, pretty much almost to the penny off that same level. And then we start coming up again. Right. So at this point now, you know, this is this is kind of like another front side to me. So. I would basically delete this line, you know, delete all these, and then I would see kind of like where the next move is. So maybe, you know, again, because I'm predominantly a short seller, you know, maybe the next one is now that's that's my next front side I'm looking at, right? So at this point, you know, we have this line, and you just do the same thing, right? So we have front side here, and then as soon as it breaks that front side, now I'm looking for horizontal lines to use as my levels. So you know, I would draw probably right there as we came up, you know, bounced off of here, broke through it. You can see it kind of came up, hit that line, broke through again. So now that we've broken through here and we're backside, you know, it's the same thing, right? You just, you know, you're just going line to line. So you can either short it when it breaks this line, comes right down to this next base again, or, you know, you come right back up on the backside of the move, you short right into this line, cover back down again, you know, and then it, look, it just keeps channeling between these two levels, right? So it's, it's it's question yeah um uh so can, can you put the horizontal back the yeah. the bottom one so so you play would you play both like um the short when it first broke the diagonal or would you play the second one because if you could put the top horizontal there as well because i know i know a lot of uh the more cautious traders won't play that first dip they'll look for the confirmation the of the trend break from the diagonal wait for um it to the price to bounce back to that top horizontal line to see a rejection and they're like okay this thing's for sure dead and they'll play that second one right so usually what i would do i, I kind of like to double these up like so if i was playing something like this like what i would do because this is all you know these are one hour this is over the one hour time frame so you know like oh, this is yeah. a day like this is a day this is a day so like you know if you're looking from the from this peak down to this value you're looking at, uh like it looks like three and a half or so days right including pre-market and stuff so like the way that I would usually do these sort of things is I would start in really small up here and then I would look for another, you know, it's, it's just combining more and more. So like, like I said, you know, we have, we have our major front side move here. So I showed you that first one where we were backside. Now, you know, as we get further along that line just kind of keeps flattening essentially. So now here's our second front side move. So at this point, like what I'd be looking to do is basically let it, you know, let it come down because I, I never chase weakness on the short side because yeah, it's just yeah. it's way too risky. So I always wait for a bounce. So I wouldn't touch any of this personally. Um, let it come up. 
And then I would maybe start small here or maybe not at all. And then what I'd look to do is, you know, just in like the interim here, like, you know, I would do something like that where like, I'm looking, okay, you know, we have a bottom, we're trending up, you know, we've hit this line. So this is my line of interest. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, 59, 60, that's where I'm thinking it's going to reject. So I would combine that with another smaller, you know, front side trend line right here. And then this little pop right there, that's where, that's where I'd get in. So like, you know, you can start in here. I usually don't just because, you know, for me, like on this particular move, you know, you're looking at getting an extra dollar a share for a potential, you know, like six, $7 reward. Like to me, that's not really worth it. Cause if I put in, you know, 20% of my size up here and then it just blows through that line and takes off, I'm just taking a loss. Whereas if I get in back here, I can just go full size right away because I know it's not going to come back up and I know I got way more upside. Right. So it's, so that's kind of like what I would do is I'm just combining like, okay, here's my big backside line up here. Here's the horizontal line I was looking for. So it's bounced up. It's hit that horizontal line. I have another little trend line that's kind of happening, you know, within this little um, pattern in here. And now we're, we're under this, you know, call it intraday or, you know, multi-day trend line. We're behind this multi-week trend line. We're underneath the line that I thought it was going to reject off. Like, you know, we got three things that are telling me this thing is a great short. So that's, that's where I get in full size. And like the same goes for long, right? Like long, you just want to be looking for front side of the move. So if this is your line, you know, you could buy it off here and, you know, just sell it up into this next level. Then when it comes back down, you could buy it off here again and sell it up into that next top, right? It's the same, exact same thing, just line to line. So like for, for a long example here, um, this again, like, like you always want to use horizontal lines. Like these, these trend lines are never really good to use as actual risk levels because it can flip through it pretty far. And it's, they're, they're, like I said, they're really open to interpretation. So like, if you wanted to long this, um, basically what I'd be looking to do is that, like say, okay, this is my, this is my front side of the move here. So I obviously need this base to draw that line. Right. So I've drawn it from here. I need to see this first. So what I would do in this case is I would pull this up to that level and this level here. So I'd let it come up, you know, it tops out here at 63 bucks and then it comes down. Now I'm watching this trend line, right? So now we've based here, you know, we've based again. Once you see that reversal, you're just doing the opposite thing, right? So you go trend line, you know, it's the exact same as the backside line I did on the smaller time frame, right? You do that, that downtrend line. So if we zoom in on this, it's the exact same thing. So here's my overall front front side line. Now here's, you know, this is this is the downtrend line here. So as we're coming, you know, we've based off this level, which I'm interested in, and it's come over. So right here, you know, 54 bucks, you can buy in full size here and you just ride this thing right up to that next line. Right? You know, there's not there's not even really any hiccups in there. It's it just goes, you know, it's line to line, it's pretty clear cut. And a lot of stocks lack this way. So this is this is basically my whole trading system essentially you could catch knives you you know enough <laughs> now nah, i like sorting better <laughs> but that's kind of why like you know when i look at this thing now it's um well here let's change the let's change the time frame a little bit here from 2018. Yeah, the uh, the diagonals are they are tricky. It took me a while to get them. Like, yeah. it's, it's more of an it's more more of an art than science. You can't just pick like a bunch of low points and say and start drawing a diagonal. Um, right. 
So, yeah, so, the, so basically, you know, at this point, when I look at, uh, you know, this particular chart, so I get these out of here, um, you know, you could argue that, you know, if you're coming from down here, that could be true front side. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just open to interpretation, right? At this point, I mean, that's, again, this is why I don't really like these trend lines as, as something to actually buy off. I like the horizontals because those are a lot more distinctive. So like what I could that, play. Where does that bottom horizontal, um, or sorry, where does that bottom diagonal lead to with price? Like if, if the price is about to fall there, say in a few days. Right now this is 22, yeah, 22 which is, wow. which kind of might make sense because it lines up. If you look over here, you know, if you draw this, this is really when the move first started. Like, you know, this is when it kind of, this is the yeah. first ramp. So this is where you have the most power. And that very first pullback was right there at, you know, 2195, right? That was, that was when it just started to really take off, right? So if you zoom out, yeah, I mean, they intersect over here. So there's also this base here. So I bet you in the next, like this week, we're probably going to see AMC will come down um i would say you know probably close to maybe 26 bucks it might come down to 22 um and then it'll bounce again and we'll see how high it bounces and we'll see you know we'll just kind of basically do the same thing we're doing here you know just keep keep knocking those trend lines flatter and flatter and flatter and you can just play both sides of the move all day long but as soon as this like this to me is the ultimate trend line right here like this one for sure that we got so if we get you know if we if we break right below this 20 you know now it's say 22 bucks roughly you know another week that trend line will be around 24 bucks once that breaks then then it's 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 dead like that's there's no more there's no more trades to be made on this thing i can't i forgot my order do you remember what i put what 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 i put my shorts at for uh or my longs at for uh, amc i remember i was trying to catch a knife did I say twice? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and that was off your Fibonacci's, right? Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, so we're we're landing like right on the exact same number using different styles, right? Yeah, I love it when so those those are one of the the more nuanced things like uh, it's called confluence. So when a bunch of different indicators are pointing to r roughly the same price, then that's like a high probability uh, target. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's why I like using like multiple lines as well, right? Because like. If I'm looking at a chart and like all I have is horizontal lines, it's like, okay, you know, it's, it's kind of good. But then if I have, you know, an overall backside and then I have another trend line within that and I have a horizontal line and they're all kind of combining into one point and the stock's going to hit right into that. I mean, like, you know, you, you, those are the kind of things I just throw my whole account at because I know it's going to work. <laughs> I, I noticed one thing you don't use a lot is uh, RSIs or any of the other moving indicators like the MACD or anything, right? No. I just, I just like, honestly, I, I've tried playing around with them and I just find it just like, it just messes with me because it'll like, it, it'll contradict what I'm doing a little bit here and there. And it's just like, I just keep it so simple. It's like, I don't know. It's just, it's just easier for me to keep it as simple as I can. Yeah, I agree. Simple is better. I used to have a ton of indicators on and I know people that have like, and I still have more than you. And, I, yeah. and there's people that have like way more than me. And I'm like, how do you, how do you get any answers when you have like eight different indicators? Like. Yeah, and to be honest, like not uh, like six out of the eight are the same ones. They're all lagging momentum indicators. So it's like you kind of just need one, also, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the only one, like the only indicator that I really use is basically volume. And like to be honest, yeah. I don't, really, I don't really, I don't really use volume as like an indicator. Like if I was playing this, you know, like I've been shorting AMC now since like it was at like fifty six bucks because it's broken that backside, right? So I've just kind of been shorting this thing down on pops, um, you know, until it gets back down to a dollar or whatever it's going to be. Um, 
but uh yeah like all i really use the only reason that i use volume is just to make sure people are playing it essentially like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try and you know trade something that's so thin you know the spreads like a dollar or something like that but i mean overall it's yeah it's pretty much just volume and then i just use my trend lines i'm curious though um if you could draw your previous trend line like the like first one that broke yeah uh i just want to see something because there's um there's sometimes well i only use i only short bitcoin but when i do short bitcoin this is one of the things i look for it's where um i, I rely on the rsi uh because okay. usually one of those at least one of those diagonal trend lines will also coincide with um the rsi divergence so we use okay. I, I use the uh, the diagonal as a confirmation so you see so what that means uh for those listeners is that you'll see the price peak and then you see the price sometime later, like in the, in the next uh, high, we'll do it like a higher high, but you'll see a lower low on the RSI. So it's, you got a, you got a lower low on the RSI and a higher high on the price, and that's called a divergence. And then we draw a diagonal line. So as soon as you see a divergence, that's signal one to pay attention. Signal two is when it breaks that line. It's basically confirmation that we're, we're on a downtrend now. The momentum is, is broken. So I'm just curious yeah. if you pulled up the RSI, would, would, would there be any um, divergence on any of the diagonals? Let's see. I've never used RSI in this program before, so just give me a second. Oh wow! Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, it doesn't show up on an, on another wow. window, eh? Um. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how to do it. I don't want to waste time trying to figure this out right now. Yeah. No uh, Yeah, I'll just get that off of there now. Oh, hold on! I just took the price off of it. <laughs> I think real quick we could probably eyeball to see if there is one wonder. Okay, there we go. There's the price. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So like, basically, what you're saying is like, if you if you see the price trending up, and then your RSI is kind of trending, starting to trend down, then you know that people are losing interest on it, right? It's and losing momentum. Like, oh. Yeah. And the same thing goes for the opposite side, right? Like, if you see if you see the RSI trending down and the price is starting to trend back up, then that's that's also a divergence, right? Or is that no? The the price will continue to trend down, but the RSI will start going up. Right. 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 I think that was probably. Yeah, so you would combine that kind of like a horizontal level. So if we were coming down here, for example, and the RSI was starting to trend up and we were getting pretty close to say this, you know, this 42, this $42 line, then that's probably a pretty good indicator that you can buy off this dip for that next move. I would, um, I would probably uh, pay really close attention to when it hit that dip and then I would buy it as soon as it broke that horizontal um, from the top side. Right, right. Or sorry, the diagonal from the top side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, as soon as he broke that. Yeah, I just want to show one more here really quick. It's a smaller, like this one. I've just been like really, really doing well on this one over the past few weeks. It's XELA. Um, I, I'm not really sure what the company is, but <laughs> it's like you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, but I, I made a lot of money on this over the past couple of weeks, so I'll show it anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so same, same idea, right? You know, the thing starts going up here um you know you just draw your your front side back side lines you know like this could be one um you know you could have another one say from down here right so you just get all your lines in and uh it's the same thing right so you know if you take um you know we can do them back here um you know something like that so yeah like this this was the first one um right here so on this move here, you know, you can see this is kind of the big up move, right? And then, so people people look at this, right? And they're, they're looking, they're thinking, okay, well, you know, the stock's up here, you know, $3.70 or whatever. Like, why don't, why don't we try and short this big, this big strong move up here and then fade it all the way down? Well, it's because 
for me personally, like this is so much riskier because you don't know if the thing's just going to, you know, skyrocket out of there because again, this is all front side of the move. So the safer play, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny thing because the dollar reward is less like on the actual stock. So like, if you look in here, you know, if we get in on the backside here, we can hit this pop at say, you know, 270. And then we can fade this thing down to just, you know, the next two lows, which would be, you know, 203 and say 190, right? Um, just these two levels here is kind of like what you'd be looking to cover into. So if you look at that, it's like, okay, well, we could, sh you know, try and start shorting up here at 370 and then, you know, come all the way down here to, to $2. So we're making like a buck 70 a share. Well, for me, like, let's say, you know, you wanted to play, I don't know, a few thousand shares on this. Like, you know, I'm not comfortable putting that much size up here. Like I would never put that much size up here because this is, this is just way too overextended for me. It's front side it's strong like i don't know if this thing's gonna dip and just you know blow shorts out of the water so why not just wait until the thing comes down because if it comes down to here it still has a ton of room to fall you know the the, the trend started at dollar 40. so if we're up here at 270 like there's still tons of room for this thing to fall down so rather than you know trying to get in a little bit up here like maybe you start at 330 and then you get blown out and you say oh 350 is going to be it and then it runs up and it spikes up to 380 and then it blows you out again and you, you're getting frustrated wait till it comes down here you know put your just draw your lines in here's your little dip right at 268 or whatever comes down pops into that you hit that level and then just put full size you know you can throw a few thousand shares on that without you know without any stress in the world because you know it's going to hit that come all the way back down to the next line which it you know it does every time so um it's kind of like you know the, the way that i trade it, it always looks like i'm taking a much smaller portion of the move but I can put way, way more size on it. So I'm, I'm getting paid a lot more by doing it that way because when I was doing it the other way, I was trading a lot more, you know, it was a lot more like, you know, it might be more considered more exciting or whatever you want to call it, but it was also a lot more stressful and you lose a lot more because it's just a lot riskier up there. Like I'm at the point now where, you know, I just wait until it confirms and then I'll hop in and I'll just ride it, you know, from level to level. And it's the same kind of thing here. If it goes from 270 down to, you know, two and I cover and then it drops to a buck 30. Like, I don't care because that's not what I'm aiming for. I'm just aiming for that one, you know, the, the predictable move, the one that I know is going to happen. And then you get out and you look for the next one. Um, same thing over here, right? You know, here's your, here's your overall front side and then it drops down. And then actually, if I put this over to, I'll put this on the candles so you guys can see it a little bit better. Yeah. So like, if you, you know, this, this is why I like the line chart as well, because it's, it's a little easier to find those levels. So if I put on the candles, it kind of doesn't really look as clean. Um, but if you look at it here, you know, we basically wicked right into those levels. So if I flip this back over to the candles here for one second. Those are one hour candles, excuse me. Uh, yeah, these are one hours. So I so. just found uh, something you'll probably find interesting. Uh, that trend line that, that you drew. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I know you can't pull up the RSI, but the peak on July 8th, so that was, there's, there's a peak on July 8th, I think. On this chart? On, uh, well, I, I'm on TradingView, but there should be one top on July 8th, and there's another top on July 13th. So within that five-day period, there's two tops. Um, one was at 3 bucks and 86 cents, something like that. And the yeah. next one was like 5 bucks, something like that. Yeah, so this is um, July 8th. That's July 8th, right? Uh, and so the next one over here. Yeah. Yeah, so those two tops were what we were just talking about in terms of divergence, because on the RSI, they, they, they coincided with two with a slope, okay. so a lower so a lower high. And then that trend line is exactly where, where um, 
where you, you would do be the confirmation that the momentum has switched. Okay. So maybe that's something that I can start to use then to try and yeah. like get a little bit higher here is like, if they are spiking up like that and you see that divergence on the RSI, then maybe, you know, maybe that's your indicator to start small here and then confirm yeah. and then add yeah. more once it gets below the line. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause like, I'll just show this again and then I'll be done with all this. But, you know, if you look with the, with the line chart here, you know, we're going, let's pull this down. So it's right on, you know, we're going, this is our front side again for this little move. And then this is kind of where I'd be looking for my level right around four bucks here. Like that's where I see a base on the line chart. And then if we flip over to the candles here, um, yeah, you can see like, you know, you had this big wick and it went, what was that? Um, five cents over the line. And then, you know, and then it just, it just, you know, sold straight off back down to the bottom here, you know, 325. So, you know, you could throw a few thousand shares at that and you're only risking, you know, five, six cents and you can make, you know, a couple thousand bucks. and a day basically <laughs> so yeah that's pretty much all i want to show is just, is just the importance of you know it's everybody says like oh you know short it or go long or oh, this is a great buy but just always zoom out look at the big picture and look at where the chart is because like that's what kind of why i started with amc because like when you look at amc everybody just you know it's, it's just this big hype chart and everyone's thinking oh it's you know it's way up here and every time i look on twitter like even even on friday everyone's thinking oh it, you know, it gapped up on uh, on Thursday night or whatever. So I was like, oh, tomorrow's the day that we squeeze. And, you know, it's going to them. And, you know, I'm sitting here looking at this thing. I'm like, this is this is clearly backside. Like it has to come down to at least 26 before before it actually bounces in my mind, because that's where that next line is. Right. If it, it, there's no there's no reason for it to turn around here unless there's a news release. So in my opinion, this will come down to 26 and then it might bounce way back up, but it's going to come to 26 first. So that's, you know, just it's it happens over and over again. It's not rocket science. <laughs> no, but I think that's an awesome thing you pointed out, because I, I think this is one of those things that only time can teach you. Because like if you're new, there's, you're thinking you're, there's no way it's going from 40 to 26. There's no way it's going from 60 to 20, like especially not in like a few weeks. Right. Yeah. It's only after you've seen it time and again, like you're like, oh, shit, it does happen. Yeah. Well, it just depends on how far apart those lines are. Right. Because like. When you look at those lines, like, you know, you call it no man's land. That's what, you know, like people in the trading community call it is because there's no, there's no play in there. Like, yeah, you know, you can scalp around for a couple cents here and there if that's your trading style. But if you're trying to get like decent moves out of the thing, then, you know, you just, you just use the lines. Like if it's at the top line, you short it. If it gets to the bottom line, you cover it or you can buy it long if that's your plan. But in between is just, it's just noise. It's just chatter. You don't know what it's going to do. And, you know, in my opinion, for this particular chart, it's it's not dead. I mean, it's still overall front side until it gets below basically $22 a share. So there, this thing can absolutely still squeeze or whatever everybody thinks it's gonna do, but it's gonna go down to, to the 20s. It's gonna go down to 26 bucks first, and it might go down to 22 bucks before you get that next decent bounce. I'm curious, how's the volume looking? Is it the, the, on a decline or on, a, on a, an incline? Um, I don't have volume. Hold on, let me open it up on here. Here, that's really ugly, but declining like quite a bit. More, more recently, like that hard sell off is inclining, so that's dumping. That's yeah. not like a few people pushing the price, that's like three people freaking out. That's how I'm reading yeah. it. Well, another thing, just in like a side, another thing I thought was kind of funny, I was just looking at the filings, and there's a whole whack load of insiders in this company that sold all their shares in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> 
like, I was just looking at, I was just like, I wonder what these people are doing. Cause like, like they know the company's bankrupt and I was just looking, I was like, Oh, I like clicked the first one. I'm like, Oh, so-and-so who's on the board had like three, 3,500 shares sold every single one at $60. So-and-so this other person had 5,000 shares sold every single one at $55. I'm just like, Hmm. Curious. What's the time frame from like that the highest peak till when those guys sold? Like roughly, like like was it like a few weeks? What is this? The second? I'm not sure when it was exact. I think it was up in this consolidation here. Yeah, most of them are getting out because they had this. Because I think you know, obviously the people that are in the company are the ones that are. um, Hold on here. Because I have a strong. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the people that are in the company, like they just want to sell their shares for as high as possible because it's a bankrupt company, right? So like at this point, they're trying to get out for as much money as they can before the thing basically goes back to zero or they file for bankruptcy. So like, you know, if it was me and I was an insider, like I see this huge move, you know, you have this big Twitter following and then it, it you know, it tanks here. You know, I'm, I'm still going to hold on because I don't know if it's going to go up to 100 or whatever. And then once you see, I think when, what happened probably, you know, from my, from what I know anyways, is we had this first line, you know, remember that first upward trend line that we kind of drew like somewhere around here. So I think what happened is this, we had this big spike, it came down, you know, they were all kind of waiting. And then when we broke here, we had this next move up and all the insiders were selling into this because to that, like, I mean, that's, that's what I would do. Cause I'm looking at this, I'm saying, okay, now we're in the backside of the move. So let's get the hell out of here while we're still in the 50s and 60s and, you know, before this thing falls back down. So I think that's probably what happened. I mean, that's, that's you know, as, as, a, as a technical play, that, that would make the most sense to me anyways. Uh, this, was, this would have been a good question for Brandon, but I know there's SEC requires reporting for them to sell. So I can't remember if they have to report like a certain amount of time before they sell because it would be really weird if they're like sold at the top, right? Because they have insider information, mm-hmm. they're acting on it. So I think... They're restricted with like, um, like say just I'm just pulling out a number. Say like two weeks before you you're, you plan to sell, you have to report to report it to the SEC. Yeah. Um, so I'm so I'm just wondering because if that period there, like they saw the first peak and it looks like they didn't break it and it didn't hit that diagonal. They're like, oh shit. Then they're like, I'm gonna sell, and then they wait for two weeks later, like thump. Like that's why yeah. I did that kind of double top thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that is what because I remember <laughs> I saw people tweeting saying that like. You know, oh, so and so, like insiders have sold all their shares now, and the stock still hasn't gone down. So this is like great news for us because it's not diluting it or whatever. And you know, I'm I'm sitting over here like, okay, every everybody that's working at this company is dumping all their shares. That's not good news. I'm sorry, that's not good news. And it's like I don't even think it's good news that the price didn't tank. That means people like regular buying it at that price, which yeah. tells me there's less money to be buying it at a lower price. I know, I know. The whole thing is just yeah. But I mean, it, the funny thing is though, like I didn't, I didn't trade this for the longest time. Like I, you know, like I said, I've been kind of like, you know, I've been swinging this thing short for the past few weeks now since it's broken down. But like I didn't touch it for the longest time because I've never seen that much activity on a stock. Like on Twitter, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what it was going to do. I don't know, you know, everybody's talking about all these option squeezes and you know this and that, and there's all these naked short. Like you know, I don't know any of that stuff. I, I just don't, right? And but like I can still make money doing what I do and. Like I've been shorting AMC for weeks, making money, knowing what I know. And I don't know any of this other stuff that all these guys are talking about. So like, to me, that tells me that this chart just trades technically like any other chart. So like moving forward, 
I'm just going to trade this as if I would trade any other stock because it's shown me now that it's just going to do what these stocks do, which is just, you know, follow the trend lines, follow the horizontal lines until it, you know, gets low enough that there's not any more trades to be had. Yeah, I noticed that with um, most stocks, actually, they're, they're all pretty technical. Sometimes you have to zoom out a little. Sometimes you have to uh, zoom in a little. But you'll usually find that they do trade pretty technical. They'll, they'll listen to the right levels and, and trend lines and whatnot. Yeah, so, I, think, I think it's more so just like those initial moves, like the initial runs that are kind of, you know, you just kind of sit back and watch. But then once it kind of settles itself out, then it just, yeah, it just becomes, you know, the same old technical line to line. And like we, you know, we just kind of proved it. Like I, I had my horizontal and my trend lines and, you know, you use your Fibonacci's and we lined up almost to the penny, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to dip by it where I'm saying it's probably going to base and turn around. Yeah, exactly. That's why. That's why. That's right there, right? I love this stuff. There's so many different strategies, but I love it when when we talk in the chat and we have the same numbers but different methods. I'm like, okay, that's when I gotta act. Yeah, then we know we're good. <laughs> but right. um, but, stuff here? yeah, I just had like so I had a couple conversations this week about real estate, uh, mm -hmm. and I didn't, and, and like I don't know that like real estate is one of the areas where I know like very little about, so I don't flip houses. I don't. The only the reason I pay attention is because I kind of want to buy a house at some point. Yeah. But um, but but the conversation was that you know houses are unaffordable and people are thinking like, well, when can we ever kind of get, become an owner or, and whatnot? And and like a few episodes, um, a few months ago, I think on an episode, I kind of touched on it and it reminded me of the data that I found. And I just wanted to pull some stuff up, Sammy, if you could um share my screen. But it was basically I have so I have a theory that within three to five years. Um, home prices will, will see a significant, significant drop. And I remember you mentioned like your dad's fund manager, was it? He was saying something that was more like a little bit sooner, like two to three, was it? Yeah, so like the guys that I was talking to were saying that they're thinking probably 2023. And uh, for anybody listening, that like David and I were in Ontario, Canada. So the housing market here, I think is, I'm pretty sure it's like considered one of the most expensive in like the world, like in Toronto, like GTA area. Um, so it's like the housing market's basically just been nuts here for the longest time. Um, but, uh, yeah, like the guys that I was talking to were thinking like probably 2023, there's going to be, if not a decent, like pullback in housing prices, then there's going to be a serious, like flattening out of the curve kind of thing. And like, I have, I have some of my own kind of thoughts on that from both sides. So I want to hear what you have to say first, based on what you were looking at. Yeah. The reason like, it's tempting to say it's going to happen soon. Because I think it's based on the speed that the home prices have gone up. People expect if it goes up fast, it'll come down fast. What I've learned from the last year is that markets are pretty resilient. Like bubbles can last quite a while and just um, be surprising, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason I say it's three to five is because it kind of coincides with, um, I'm going to, where did I pull this up? So it kind of coincides with a demographic issue. Um, so here's uh, home ownership rates, right? D divided by age group. So you can see like people 35 and younger, younger just not owning homes. You know, yeah, 35, 44, like it's, it's on a steady decline of ownership, right? But what's interesting is like um, the boomer generations, which is, which is which that 65 and over now, they're not only the wealthiest, but they're probably the largest demographic that's uh, homeowners. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't want to be morbid, but they're all going to start dying in, in the next five to 10 years, <laughs> right? Or, or even if they're alive, they're probably going to start going into retirement homes or maybe, you know, having the kids move back in homes. Either way, what I'm saying is there's going to be an, uh, an abundance of supply in the market, right? right? So, you know, supply and demand still dictates price. And so I think there's going to be a, a large amount of supply in the market. 
coinciding with a time that interest rates should be quite a bit higher. Like, you know, interest rate for a home goes up 1%. When you're talking about a main $2 million home, that's a big deal. Oh, yeah. Right? That really cuts people out of ownership. So if, you know, interest rate goes up to maybe even 2.5%, 3%, that puts a lot of people out of the market. Right. Mm -hmm. so, the, so you have uh, a situation where it's harder to get a loan. There's an extra abundance of supply. And I have a feeling that a lot of millennials who could be saving up for homes right now or millennials and younger could be saving up for homes right now aren't because it seems like it's such an indomitable task. And so they're just doing the, doing the YOLO lifestyle. I'm going to rent and go on vacation. And, and then, and then when, when the right opportunity comes, it's going to be like, shit, I didn't save when I could have. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, these are all like just speculation, but I, I think it, it, follow, it does follow some logic. And I think because of those factors, um, home prices will, will decline in about three to five. Yeah, so I have a couple different thoughts on that. Um, like I, I, I kind of, I kind of agree with both sides of the coin on that, on that particular argument because, like the way I look at it. So first of all, I, I don't remember the exact number. I think it's two percent. So when you buy a home here in Ontario, they have a thing called the stress test, which basically is like if you if the current mortgage rates are two percent, they'll the banks will qualify you for a mortgage that's two percent higher. So they'll qualify you for a four percent um, interest rate on your mortgage. So like, let's say with, you know, like David, like, let's say with your income, you can afford a $1 million home at the current rates, which are say 2%, the bank will only allow you to have a mortgage on like an $800,000 home because they're basing it on 4%. And the reason that they did that is so that um, when all these people remortgage, because that was the biggest thing I was talking to my mortgage broker about when we bought our house was you know, like what's gonna happen in a few years? Like, is everybody just gonna like lose their house? Cause they're like, you know, they're stringing themselves out way past their budget. And this, that's what he explained to me. He says, well, no, because like, like, you know, for us, for example, like we can afford a home that's worth way more than the one we're in now, but that would be on the higher interest rates. So essentially like what they're trying to do is like, you know, when, I, when we got our house, like interest rates were really low. I think now they're around like, you know, just over 2%. So if the interest rates go up to even 4%, which is really high, then all those people that bought homes, you know, in the high one percents or two percents, they'll still be able to afford their homes on their current salary today. And right. assuming, obviously, in a three to five year mortgage, they're not going to get a raise or make more money, which they most likely will anyways. So for that reason, I don't think that a lot of people are going to be like getting kicked out of their homes unless obviously interest rates go to like, you know, seven, eight, nine percent or something ridiculous. Um, and the other thing is, um, you know, because they're saying housing prices are going up so much. There's another big thing here in Ontario anyways, is uh, immigration, which has been shut down basically for COVID, right? So like we have lots of immigration here, lots of people coming in with money that are buying houses. So currently, you know, the market's been going pretty crazy because everybody's basically buying houses or trying to get out of the city and all that kind of stuff. Once COVID, you know, whether it's a year from now or two years or whatever, it's going to be finally really kind of tapers off. And we can allow, you know, assuming our government doesn't change its policies, immigration getting back up to the same kind of flow that it was before, you're going to have way more people coming in with money again. So even if there is potentially a bit of a surplus in housing from, you know, say the baby boomers or um, people losing their homes because interest rates go up too much, that could easily get matched by the immigration coming in, which would cause the prices, the prices to not drop at all and potentially just keep rising, right? So... That's kind of the devil's advocate side of that that coin. No, I agree. I saw I, I was I was I, I saw two factors that could possibly keep the prices up or from not as dropping as low. 
one of them is the foreign foreign investor immigration thing. Although I just, at least from the Asian side, I think I think that side's going to start drying up from Asia. I'm not sure about Europe. I don't know there, but like China's uh, right now, they're cracking down very very hard on capital outflows um, because the because of the way they print their money. They can't allow too much of it outside of their country. Otherwise, it kind of like starts to threaten their uh, um, market, their, their, their economy. And so they're re heavily restricting um, how much money can be moved out each year by citizens. And on top of that, they're really clapping down on Hong Kong right now. And a lot of buyers are from Hong Kong. Because uh, the, the thing about Hong Kong is it's so expensive that if you sold like a shack there, you could buy a pretty decent house here. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And, and so, but, but now that China's like really taking, trying to take, exert their control over Hong Kong, I wonder how many of their people are, they're going to allow to come out to, you know, buy a home here, or even become a citizen here. So hmm. that's like one. So that's, I see that foreign thing as a factor, but I, that's the, the X spot that I don't quite know how it's going to play out. But right. the one thing I do, the one thing I didn't anticipate that uh, apparently is happening, Sam, if you could pull up my, uh, my screen. Um, it's just, this is Canada. Investors account for a fifth of home purchases in Canada. Are they driving up home prices? So um, this is kind of like going to the rich get richer thing. Uh, investors, a lot of the home prices are being kept up uh, because investors are buying homes. And actually BlackRock made, um, uh, was it Blackstone made, uh, made news the other day. They put six billion into buying and renting homes. And mm -hmm. so what's happening recently is like um, hedge funds are starting to buy up properties. Yeah, I was actually I was reading an article about that actually. They were buying like whole subdivisions and yeah. I didn't really realize that. And I heard I heard people like getting all upset about it because you know they're like a bunch of my friends still don't have houses or anything like that. You know, they're all like almost in their thirties kind of thing. And it's like, well, how the hell are we supposed to afford a home if they're like just coming and buying it and listing it higher, trying to turn a profit or renting it, right? It just makes it even harder. So I'm not sure what yeah. the government stance is gonna be on that. This is the problem with lobbying. I I'm, I feel like the government's going to be their hands are going to be tied. Mm -hmm. But but it is creates a problem, right? If if hedge funds who have the money to buy the homes now or now or up or down um, become landowners and they just perpetual income is rent, right? Yeah. What what happens? It's a uh, so like I worry that without government intervention, house prices could stay up, and then it's because of these factors. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking too. Like I don't see. I don't see housing prices coming down. I can definitely see them slowing down and then, you know, tapering off and speeding back up as they do. But unless we have like a major economic shift, I just like, I, d I just don't personally see them taking a dive anytime soon because I don't think the government can let it, especially now, even, even more so now if you're getting investors and stuff buying this, like they're not going to be able to. Yeah. It's, it's multifaceted for sure. Um, yeah. I had one thought though, that, so the the supply the extra supply in the market thing right so um a couple of the people i was talking to they made a good point they're like um it, the the prob the children of those uh, boomers are probably going to inherit the homes right so they're going to split it between the, the siblings and whatnot and i thought well realistically maybe you could tell me but realistically i think those homes are still going to end up being sold on the market because if you look at the current culture of just like not really saving they these probably these people are probably going to be inheriting the homes at a time when they're um heavily in debt so then inheriting a home like a million dollar home is like a jackpot so yeah. the thought process could be hey maybe we sell the house downsize and pay off our debt so either way i think those homes are going on the market right the other thing too that a lot of people don't realize is that you have to pay taxes on that even if you do get a home like in a will or whatever like if if you have uh you know my, my dad explained this to me because you know i was he's like he's owned our cottage for like over 30 years me and my sister always joke like oh yeah when you you know we better get the cottage in the will kind of thing <laughs> 
then the one day he's like, he's like, oh yeah, he was like, oh, I gotta leave you like, you know, a few hundred thousand with it too. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he like, so I did some research. He explained it all to me. So like, um, basically you have to, he has to leave you enough money to pay the taxes, like essentially on the sale of that home. So like, you know, if you're looking at something that's like, you know, a $2 million property, if somebody just, if somebody passes away and gives you that property, they have to, you have to pay the government like something like three or $400,000 in taxes to accept it. So that's why you get so many, like when you see an estate sale, that's why it ends up being like such a good deal is because a lot of the times, like, you know, like God forbid, imagine someone in my family passed away right now and they left me their home, you know, the government would be standing there like, okay, you have to pay us, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in the next couple months, or you know, we're taking a house. So that you have to basically rush to sell it. So that's why I think a lot of those things that's why I kind of agree with you. I think a lot of that stuff is gonna go on sale. I'm just trying to look up real quick what the percentage is. That sounds but that yeah. makes sense. I, I forgot about that one factor. I'm not sure what the percentage is, but I know it's a, like, it's a lot of money. <laughs> like, it's, en- it's enough that like, you wouldn't be able to afford it. On top of that, non-registered capital assets are considered to have been sold for fair market value immediately prior to death. Any resulting capital gains are 50% taxable. So you're getting, yeah. just getting hosed. There you go. So, so that's, that's why. So if you look at my parents' cottage, you know, they bought it for 30,000 bucks in the 80s. Now it's worth a few million. So their capital gains on that is like, you know, say two and a half million dollars. So I'd be paying tax on two and a half million dollars if they gave me that cottage. <laughs> it's met, it, like it's it's fucked for lack of a better term. <laughs> so that's that's the thing, though, right? So if you get these estate sales, it's like, oh yeah, it's great. You know, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa left them left the, left us the house, but you know, you have to sell it. You have no choice, even if you want to keep it. Unless you got, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars laying around that you can just afford to drop right then. Wow, that's just yeah. ridiculous. So that's well, well, so I guess that's the that's I think those are going to be the opposing factors to watch then, like how many forces are, are continuing to buy, whether it's funds or foreigners and then mm. versus and it's going to be versus the supply, how much supply will be dumped onto the market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's gonna be really like it's really interesting. It's that's the funny thing. It's just another market, right? Real estate. It's just another market. It but the other thing, I think, I think I mentioned this a little, uh, in one of the other episodes too. I was reading an article on Bloomberg about um, they were doing like some investigation on whether or not because it is so hard for you know people to afford a home right now in, in Ontario and stuff. Um, like you know, like you know, a bunch of my buddies are single and stuff like that. So it's like you know, how do they afford? A home in Toronto, like you, you know, you can't unless you're making like a crazy salary, right? So they're saying that it actually it might even make more sense to just invest, like to literally just rent for your whole life and just put money in the stock market. Because like if you look at like you know, it's, it's like I said on the other on one of the other episodes, you know, you put thirty thousand bucks in the S and P when you're thirty years old. By the time you're sixty five, it's worth one and a half million, right? So like, you know, same same kind of deal. Like you know, I look at. Like again, if I just look at my, you know, my cottage, like, you know, it was bought for 30,000 bucks in, in the late eighties. So here we are, you know, 30 something years later, it's worth, you know, that 30,000 bucks, if you put it in the S and P would almost be worth on par with what the property value is worth. So depending on how the markets move, it's, it actually might make a lot more sense for you to just invest in the markets and just rent. Yeah. That's a really good point. You know what? I wonder if 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 the culture is just going to go that way in like ten to fifteen. Because like, I don't know if you noticed, like in just because we're similar age, in just the last ten years, there's been a huge shift in 
Like, so I've got a hard drive that's full of MP3s and movies. Because yeah. when we're growing up, it's all about owning shit and keeping shit. And then now it's all about Spotify, Netflix. I don't need to own anything. I'll just keep paying the monthly fee and I'll have access. Yeah. Right. So like I not home ownership's like a natural progression of that. Like, why am I gonna own a home? I'm just gonna pay my monthly fee. Right. Well, think about it. You know, if you wanna like if you wanna own a home, like first off, you wanna put twenty percent down because then you're not paying your your mortgage insurance, which makes your payments go up like five, six hundred bucks a month, depending on the value of the property. So let's say, you know, you're trying to buy a house that's worth say a million bucks, which around here is kind of, you know, your run of the mill generic house, unfortunately. <laughs> and you know, you're gonna, you got to save up, like, you know, you got to save up $200,000 and then you still have to have enough income from your job to be able to pay an $800,000 mortgage. So like, you know, that's very difficult to do. So instead of trying to save up, you know, desperately save up $200,000, which could take you decades, just rent, you know, like pay, cause you got to like, say your mortgage payments are going to be 2,500 bucks a month or whatever or 3000 bucks a month, including your, you know, your t- utilities and whatever, rent a place. So you're paying that same amount, you know, the amount, the amount of time it would take you to pay $200,000 in rent is, you know, what, like astronomical compared to what it would take you to, to save that kind of money. So if you just, you're taking all that extra money that you would have been saving to buy a house, which is also continually going up in value. So by the time you actually save that $200,000, oh, you know, surprise, now you need $350,000. Just pay your rent, find a decent place that you like, you know, don't go crazy and just put all your money into the markets, into safe investment stocks. And like, you probably end up getting the same, like a very comparable return to the actual real estate. And the other thing I just thought the immediate danger of saving is like, just, just the idea of uh, inflation, right? Because the yeah. government keeps printing the money and our, the, the buying power of that dollar you're saving, you're, you're nesting away, is just being eroded every year. Mm-hmm. So I just, Sam, for my screen, could you just throw this up real quick? I just really quickly, because I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, Brendan is um, still hesitant on pimping his, uh, his, mutual, his family's mutual fund, um, but I'm, I'm not. So I think last time you said they did, uh, or at least privately, they said you were doing like compound 17% a year for quite a, quite a while. Like, so this is like a normal return for them, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, like, if you should be in the market, but let's say you don't um, feel up to it to manage your, yourself, find a good uh, mutual fund, especially ones like Brandon's where they have their own capital in the fund itself, so they have uh, skin in the game. Mm-hmm. You put $20,000 initial investment, you get 70% a year interest, 15 years to grow, it's $250,000. Yeah. And try, try saving $250,000 in 15 years versus yeah. this, you know, so like, so, and, and then, but you keep adding into that too, right? So you put $30,000 right. in and then every month you keep buying more and more and more stock. So yes, I don't change 400 bucks a month. Yeah, 500 bucks. Well, let's do 400 conservatively speaking. And look at that compound, the fifth, uh, what's that eighth wonder of the world Warren Buffett says? Yeah, look at that. Now you're up just just to the addition of four hundred a month, you're you're you doubled to half a million in the same period. Yeah. So half. So yeah. You so you save up twenty thousand bucks, put in the stock market, add an extra four hundred bucks a month, and then in fifteen years you have six hundred thousand dollars. That'll buy you. That'll buy you a house. If you just try and save that money without putting it in the market, you'll never get a house. At the very least, I think if people are into long term planning, which I, I I think they should, it's like. How are you going to get that down payment? Well, you you start with a little sum, 
you put in, you nest away 400 or whatever it is a month um, you can. And then for the next 15 years, this will be your down payment. Because because that's mostly the, the, the barrier to entry for owning a home, right? It's not necessarily the monthly mortgage payments. It's that first chunk that you're required to pay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's why, that's why this is like so important though, is that, you know, I like I tell this to everybody. I was like, it's, you know, it's so important that you invest in the stock market because otherwise you just get left behind. I mean, like the economy keeps growing, everything keeps moving forward. Like, you know, if you have 20 bucks sitting on your desk, you know, next week, it's less than 20 bucks. Two weeks later, it's less than 20, even more likely, you know, it's just, it's just that 20 bucks, 10 years from now, it might only be worth $12, right? Like it just, it just fizzles away. Like cash is, it's garbage. Like cash is absolute garbage. Like the only reason that I have a certain amount of cash on hand is just because of emergencies. You know, I got like, I got enough money saved away that if, you know, my water heater explodes or I got to redo my roof or, you know, a tree falls through my living room, like stuff like that. Like I have enough, I have enough cash on hand that I can cover kind of those basic things. But other than that, like I invest everything in the markets because the markets move with the economy. So I want to move with it. I don't want to sit, sit behind and try and desperately chase it. You know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I was going to say, um, uh, what's his name? Ray Daly, the, 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 one of the largest, he runs one of the largest hedge funds. He, he, he's famous for saying cash is trash. Yeah. And it's like, I did disagree with Brendan once. I'm like, cash is trash, but it's too general of a term. Like, if just to have it and not have a purpose for it is absolutely trash. It's a waste. But like, we, me and you, we both have cash on the side, but we know exactly what we want to do with it, given the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, everybody needs to have a certain amount of cash on the side. Like, you don't want to be like, you know, you don't want to have like 200 bucks in your checking account. I'm sure you guys, any of you guys that are traders or investors, you've probably all seen those little memes where it's like, you know, life of a trader, half a million dollars in my brokerage account. 300 bucks in my checkings account like oh you know i have no money i can't go out this weekend right like you know that's that's all that's all funny but you don't want to actually live like that you know you want to have like at least a decent amount of money saved away that you can have it in an emergency because the worst thing that could happen to you as an investor is if you go into a, a into a bear market or like a stock crash like let's let's say we had 2008 where stocks were just selling off you know it took what two and a half or three years for it to get to back up to the same levels that it was the last thing you want to do is to have to sell stocks that you've owned for years at a huge loss because you didn't have enough money in the bank and you're, you know, you got in a car accident, you had to buy a new car. So now instead of buying that new car for, you know, 40,000 bucks, you had to sell a whole bunch of stock. So that car actually cost you $200,000. <laughs> that's yeah, that's the last thing you want to do. So that's, that's why cash is important for that reason is to have enough on hand that you're comfortable you look, look at all the scenarios. If anything really bad happens, catastrophic, you have the cash to pay for it. I think our school systems failed us by not teaching. I don't even know what you would call the class, but somehow to personal finance management or something like starting as early as high school. Yeah. Because it just seems like people don't have a habit of like planning for the future, right? It's like, um, it's like, it's like a slippery slope of just seemingly bad luck if you don't anticipate the things that are likely to happen. Yeah. Right? And it compounds yeah. like one bad thing just snowballs into like a thousand bad things. Yeah, it's true. Like they don't they don't teach you anything in school. Like they don't, I didn't I didn't even know what a mortgage was. Like I heard people talking about it. And I was like, I'm like 18 years old. I'm like, so okay. I, I asked my dad one day. I was like, okay, just explain to me what a mortgage is. Like I keep hearing this word. I don't even know what it is. Like what does that mean? Because like oh yeah, we have a mortgage on the house. I'm like what like is that just money? Like how, what is that? And my dad's just like it's just a loan. Like you just take out a loan so you can buy the house and then you pay the bank back. I was like oh. Okay, well, I didn't know that, <laughs> you know, like, like, it's literally that straightforward, right? But it's the same thing. They just, they don't teach you any of that stuff. And like, 
like for me, like I've always been the kind of guy where like I've always been, you know, thinking ahead. I've always wanted to have money. Like I've always worked really hard. But when I was younger, you know, it kind of sucks that I didn't have this knowledge like when I was in my teens and, you know, my early 20s because, you know, I'd probably be a lot further ahead than I am right now. But like my way of of getting around that was like, okay, I just want to have a lot of money. I don't want to work forever. I got a lot of energy right now. So, you know, that's why I work, you know, 80, 90, 100 hour weeks. And I've been doing that for, you know, years and years and years is because that's all I like. I'm like, okay, well, the only way that I know how to make money is just to work. So I work you know, all day from the time I get up to the time I go to bed. And, you know, now after doing that, I'm kind of in a pretty decent spot now. And, but I'm still not slowing down. Like, (laughs) and now that I know what I know now about the markets, I can use all that work ethic, put it into the markets, and then your returns just grow even more. And I think that's a great point. You sound like you started really early. I didn't start till I quit my, my, my office job at Brinks. And that's mm-hmm. when I took control of my, the, the whole thing where I took control of my RSP. But before that, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the mindset that you did probably at the same age. Like, so the, the, well, where I learned the importance of <laughs> calculating interest was, uh, my first year in, in, uh, in college, they had uh frosh weeks, right? So TD set up a table. They're like, ah, oh, student credit card. I'm like, ah, oh, credit card. Let me sign up for this thing. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was like famous last words, man. Like <laughs> I, I, I maxed that shit out and I just, whatever I paid off, I kept maxing it out. Like. It got to the point where um, I looked up uh, personal line of credit, unsecured line of credit, and I got th- that thing and, it, and th- I put the credit card debt onto there so I get a lower interest rate. And then I ended up working like three jobs to pay that shit off. And after that, that was like a huge three year period. And I was like, wow, what a lesson, <laughs> you know? And yeah, I never did that. I was always like, so I, I literally just used my credit cards to get the point. So like I would, I would use my credit card and then I would go on my phone immediately and pay it off before <laughs> it even showed up. Your you, your mindset's a lot like my dad. He does the exact same thing. He carries no debt and he like saves every penny. And he's like, yeah. Yeah. I wonder like, why. Like, I think nine hundred is the highest, and mine's like eight eighty six or something. It's like a couple points below. Because I remember when I was talking to the mortgage guy, he told me what my what my credit rating was, and he's like, he's like, I've been doing this for like fifteen years, and I've only seen like seven people that have a credit credit rating like yours yeah i think we compared once where's this i was i i my most recent was eight uh 44 it, it dropped 10 points because i got the uh the finance for the car oh but, okay. um but it, it'll bounce back up it's not a big deal but like they literally like i improved it instantly because i think anything above 800 you're just like you know. oh yeah you get approved <laughs> for anything yeah for sure yeah, yeah it's yeah. hilarious but like but yeah, I, I really think they should be teaching this stuff in school because it doesn't set anybody up for life. It no, no good. No. Yeah, I know school. I have so many mixed feelings about school. Like, I can't complain about it because like I wouldn't have the job that I had. Like, I wouldn't be where I am without school. But by the same token, it's like it depends on the person, right? Like, if you're if you're like really driven and you know you can plan doing a, starting a business and all this kind of stuff, like you you can learn anything you want to. And I think the biggest shift is going to come from employment, like. You know, employment has to be like, okay, you know, you don't need to have X credentials and X, you know, schooling or degrees or diplomas or whatever to do this job. Like if you have experience or like if you have an interest or whatever, like we'll interview you. And like if you're, you know, you're a quick learner, like we'll bring you into the position kind of thing. Like that's that's where the shift has to come from, because unless it, unless that happens at the employment level, it doesn't matter. Right. Like I, I could. You know, like I'm like I'm I'm an engineer, right? So like I could I could have learned everything that I know online easily for free. But if I go to an engineering firm and say, hey, like, you know, I know how to do all this stuff. Like, yeah, I just I just spent like the past two years on Google and I figured it all out myself. You know, they're gonna be like, get you know, get the hell out of here. Like, what are you talking about? Right. So <laughs> Yeah, I think um 
I think there's a shift in employment. Uh, a, a friend of mine just messaged me. I think it was a few month, month ago. We we're talking about uh, applying for work and he's an engineer too. I, I forgot what kind, but he couldn't find work in his specific field. And a buddy of his told him to apply for his company, which was um, kind of a different field, but he did it anyways. Like, I'll talk to my boss to expect your resume. So he went in for the interview and the boss was like, uh, was talking to, to, to his friend afterwards and just said, yeah, I like the guy, I like the way his mind works, you know, whatever else we could teach him on the job, but he's got the characteristics of the person that we want to hire. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like, to me, if I was an employer, that would be the most important. Like, and that's why I think I mentioned it before that, like Kevin Hart documentary, I was telling you to watch. Like, I just, I just love the way that Kevin Hart like runs his whole business because it's, it's him and it's all his buddies from like when he was a kid that run all different parts of his business. Like he, like one of his, one of his buddies, I can't remember his name, but he was actually like homeless at the time, but like Kevin had known him growing up. And when he started to get famous, he like called him up one day and apparently, you know, the guy's like super modest. He's like, oh yeah, you know, everything's fine, whatever. I'm good. But like found out he was basically living on the street. And then Kevin is just like, no, 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 man, like, here, come, you're working for me. Like, I want you to like produce this TV show that I have going on. Just like pull them. But like, but that's the same thing. Like the guy had no experience, but like who he was, like he knew he was a reliable guy. You know, he had whatever qualities he wanted to, to do this job. And he just put him in that role. Right. Because he knew, he knew that he could learn it. He could pick it up. And like, that's, that's the same way that like, I, I'm that way personally. Like if I, you know, if I meet someone or I want to work with someone or whatever, I don't, you know, like, yeah, experience to a certain degree is good. Obviously, if you kind of have an idea what you're talking about, but I don't really like, I'm not really going to sit there and look at you on paper. Like, I want to know you. I want to talk to you. Like, I want to get to know your personality. Like, that's, that's what's a lot more important. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't see that show, but I read Kevin's um, uh, biography. You can't make this shit up. I love that title. But, um, but he, uh, he's, he's like me, though. He makes, um, he makes mistakes big and, and first time, and then he learns the hard way by getting scarred. I remember there was a part about his life where he got, um, he, he just started breaking out. He got a, a show deal on, I forgot what network, and it was for one season. He, and the, he, immediately he called his dad. He's like, dad, we rich. And then he started buying like, and he started buying cars for everybody. And his dad bought a house, $50,000 house. Like everybody just started buying stuff. And I think by the, by the time the season was over, his account was like, you're broke, dude. You have nothing. And he said it was one of the most painful things in the world. We had to call his dad up. He's like, dad, you have to sell the house. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough, man. Like, again, you know, it's just a learning experience. Like everybody learns, got to work your way up there at one point, but yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it just depends who you're around. And it's, that's why it's the best to have this good group of people around you. Yeah. But, but it shows why he's like so smart with, um, with money now. Right. Cause if you, if you made those mistakes and you realize how fleeting success and money could be. Yeah. Yeah. The markets, the markets are the same thing, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, you and I know that better than anyone. That's why, that's why, like, you know, again, like I was just saying, like, I wouldn't, you know, why don't I short it way up here? Like, you know, I wait until it's, uh, until it comes down and I wait until I know it's predictable because I know how quickly that money can go away. Like, you know, you can make a thousand bucks today, tomorrow you could lose 10,000 if you're not careful. Like it's in and out so fast. Like that's why you just got to be really careful and you got to have really set, like strict rules. The same thing goes with business, right? Like you can't just be flying by the seat of your pants if you're running a business, just like, you know, just like you're saying, Kevin does there. Like you gotta have rules, you gotta have plans, you gotta look at your numbers, check your your balances, and you gotta make sure everything's actually gonna function properly. Because if you're just, you know, spending stuff around, people don't really realize that. And it's like, yeah, you know, maybe you don't realize it until you have money, sort of thing. But it it doesn't even really work that way because no matter what scale you're on, like you know, like let's say you're in high school, you're working a minimum wage job, and 
but you get, I don't know what minimum wages nowadays. Like let's say your, you know, your biweekly paycheck is like, I don't know, 800 bucks or something or 700 bucks after taxes. Um, it's 15 bucks now. Is it? Or almost, or that was the target, but somewhere, it's somewhere near there now, I think. Okay. Let me so look like, that up while you finish your thought. Okay. So yeah. So like, let's say, let's just say for argument's sake, you're making, you know, 800 bucks every two weeks or whatever, working a 40 hour week. Like if that's your first job and you know, you're 16, like that's a ton of money, right? You do that for two weeks. You got like, you know, 1600 bucks in the bank. Like, you know, that's insane. You're like, you've just worked for a month and you're like, wow, like I got $1,600. This is wild. And then, you know, you go out, you go with your buddies to, you know, Niagara Falls or whatever, and you spend a few hundred bucks and then like, you know, you, you buy a bunch of food, you know, you take a taxi somewhere and then like you get back and, you know, you, you're like, oh, I want to get a new bike. You know, you buy a new bike. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I only have like a hundred dollars left. Like it, it, it just goes so fast and it took you a month to make that much money and you can blow it in a day easily. And it just, it just scales up from there. Right. Like, you know, you look at Kevin Hart, it's like, oh yeah, we're rich now. So like, instead of going out to the movies and, but you know, he buys a house and he buys cars and it's like, it just goes so fast. It, so it doesn't. That's why it's funny, like when people look like, oh, you know, so and so was a a quarterback and made hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, how could he possibly be broke? It's like he can be broke pretty easily. Like, it's not hard to lose that much money. Like, especially if you're living that kind of lifestyle. But you know what's funny? So I was just talking with my boss at the kickboxing gym just the other day, and we both we both noticed something because we're in the market, and you'll probably agree too. Because we're in the market, we don't look at things in terms of dollar value. We're looking at percentages because that's more important. Yeah. Yeah, right? for sure. And I think and I think that's the big problem because those football players are like, I got a $20 million contract, right? But mm-hmm. if you actually look at their their, their pay stub, their breakdown, I think something like 15% goes to their PR person, uh, 10% goes to the lawyer, another 15, 20% goes to their manager. After taxes, they're probably left with 20% of that 20 million. So it's like, they have way less than they really think they do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then it's, it's also a spending thing too, right? Like if you're looking at percentages, like let's say, you know, after that, you're you're taking in like five million bucks or something like that, and then or like let's say it's four million bucks, and it's like, oh well, I want to, you know, I want to buy this, uh, you know, this Bugatti or or something, or this like you know this really nice boat, and it's a million dollars. It's like, oh, I got you know a five million dollar contract, a million. That's that's twenty five percent of your net worth. Like <laughs> that's that's way too much to be spending on a toy. Well, I'll give you a, a funnier example. So uh, the conversation started because um, his fiance bought some water. Uh, for the business and he was like saying she overpaid about 15 bucks i was like a jar, giant b- bunch of pack she overpaid 15 bucks her answer was well it's just 15 bucks he's like no it's 20 percent extra you pay 20 percent extra it, it's like if you made every purchase and you paid by overpaid by 20 bucks or 20 percent we have we'd have nothing left yeah yeah that's a great way to look at it it's hard too though especially when you get yes. in the market because like when you when, as you get as you grow and like in anything in real estate or stock investments or whatever we've talked about this before the loss side of that becomes harder, right? Because if you're used to like, let's say I'm only risking 1% of my account on my, on my trades and, you know, I have a thousand dollar account, you know, you're risking a hundred bucks. But then if you grow up, you know, you have a million dollar account, it's like, okay, now you're risking like what, a hundred thousand or whatever on, on a single trade or or 10,000 or whatever it is. It's like, that's going to be a lot. Like it's difficult to look at it like that. When you look at the dollar value, cause it's like, okay, yeah, it's 1%, but like, that's a lot of money now. I 100% agree. I noticed that start, at the start of the year, somewhere around uh, February, I started changing my sizing because I'm like, my portfolio is to the point where I realize like it, it's, uh, I think it's different for, for everybody, but it reaches a point where you realize it's not about trying to maximize risk to maximize gain. It's about trying to preserve capital, what you already have. 
and yeah. that and that switch flipped for me in February. I was like, holy shit, I need to protect this now. Yeah. That's a huge, huge thing that a lot of people don't realize in trading is that's that's why, you know, we've said it a million times, you don't always have to trade. Like there's not always gonna be a trade there, right? So like sometimes the best move you can make is just to not do anything and just like you said, preserve that capital because if you're sitting there and it's like, okay, I know how to do this. I make this one trade, I make money the next day, you know, I make money the next day, I make money the next day, there's nothing there. Then like, I need to save this because if I, if I screw up, I could, I could blow the last three days. And then, you know, that's, you know, that's almost a week of, of profits gone. So sometimes you just got to sit there and just wait because you can't, you can't just force trades. Like the, the patterns and the charts, they do what they're going to do. So all, all we can do is sit there and watch and, you know, just keep our fingers crossed that we see something that we know how to make money on. It's a lot harder said than none, though. <laughs> There's that famous saying, um, the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Yeah. It's like, if you, if you get into that period where you just can't, for the life of you, win a trade, how, how long before you lose everything? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. why, like, slow times are really hard, right? Because, like, if you're used to a crazy market, like, you know, we've been having over the past year, and things slow right down, it's like... You know, you get bored and then that, that time frame goes on longer and longer and longer. And then all of a sudden you're, you see, you know, all of a sudden one stock moves and you get all excited. And it's like, you know, six months ago, that would have been like a C minus setup that you wouldn't have even looked at. But because you haven't seen anything in so long, you're thinking, oh, this thing's perfect. Right. And then you lose all your money because it's not actually a good setup. I want to say, I think you're probably, you, your, your approach to trading and your progression, I think is probably the most sensible way because I think if people, um, put either too much money in the market or think the market is where they're going to make the majority of their income, that's going to lead to you making emo more emotional decisions. Whereas like, if you have, like you have, you've had a full-time job this whole time and the, and the trading's kind of on the side. Mm -hmm. So then like, you don't have the urgency. It's like, I have to make this next trade to put dinner on the table. And so because yeah. you don't have that urgency, you could, you know, be a little yeah. bit more choosy with your setups. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, if you listen to anybody who's a full-time stock trader, that's what they all say. Like, you know, like I've listened to enough interviews with guys and the general consensus from every single one of them is basically like, I was making the same as I do trading at my normal salary job for two years before I decided to retire or like, you know, switch over to doing it full-time or like, you know, I was making double what I was making for three years before I decided to try it full-time or like I'd paid off my house and I had no expenses and I was also making my normal salary trading so that's when i you know it's it's never just like okay you know like i think i'm doing all right let's just give it a shot and dive in there because you can't have that stress right like these guys are like okay well i've been doing this you know kind of just you know 20 percent of my focus and i'm making the same as i am in my day job so if i put 100 percent of my focus in it's going to be you know it's going to be a, a cakewalk basically but you can't you can't just like you know quit your job and just be like okay like time to figure this out. Like, let's just sign up for some courses and learn how to do it because then you're going to be stressed as hell. And if you're sitting there and three days go by and you haven't seen a trade, you're going to be freaking out because you're thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to put food on the table next week if I don't, if I don't trade. And then you're going to trade and then you're going to lose money and it's going to stress you out even more. And then, you know, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Oh, that's like the worst case scenario. But even like if, even if you've been trading on the side for say three years and you're starting to get it, you start making the money. I think that's still not a, not a, not a good, make the full um, switch yet. If you're wanting to do that, right. To yeah, let more sure. time pass. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have a lot of money in the bank. You want to be really good at it. Like it's not, it's not a quick thing. Like you gotta be real comfortable in it. I just looked it up. Uh, government approved $15 an hour minimum wage starting December 29th this year. In Ontario here? Uh, Canada, federal. 
put your attention on it, things you can't control. Like all we can do is just look at what we can control and do the best we can at that. And that's the only way you're going to get ahead. Yeah. And like I, I was talking, I forgot who I was talking to, but I have a few friends or quite a few friends in either renovations or construction, you, you're included. And I'm like, I might've been, you were talking about, I'm like, you know, there's, there's a, a huge void um, or huge demand for people in, in the trades right now. And they pay great money. Right. Like I forgot what it was, but I think it was just a one year course to be um, a crane operator. And it's, it's a great paying job I and mean, you're in construction, but it's not quite labor intensive versus the, some of the other positions there. Right. Yeah. And it's like, just set aside your life for a year, get that certification and they're begging for people to do, to fill those jobs. Oh yeah. There's a ton of demand for that. Like I know, like I used to know a guy at uh, one of the gyms I went to, he was like, he was in his, like, he was like 22 at the time. And he was a, like one of those like big crane operators that builds like skyscrapers. He was making 150 bucks an hour at like 22, 23 years old. Yeah. Holy shit. A ton of money. Like he was, and he was working, you know, like 50, 60 hour a week. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure he was making like, like 400,000 bucks a year or something like, like in that neighborhood. You, you know what? I just had a thought of if we have the, if we had the right listeners, some, some lawyer, lawyer or law students going, I'm in my fifth fucking year. I'm like a hundred thousand, fifty thousand dollars in debt. And I wish I could get $120 an hour job. Yeah, man. And there's a lot of jobs for it. Like it's, you know, it's a, it's high stress, obviously. Like, you know, you don't want to make a mistake, but yeah, there's, there's a ton of really high paying jobs out there. If you know where to look for it, if you're like, if you don't mind doing that kind of work. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of, so there's a lot of options, right? There's like, if you're like the physical kind of person or you're, you're like more, probably more social, that that's a nice job tailored to you. If you're an introvert, there is literally no better job than being a software developer. And that's mm -hmm. one of the few areas where it's highly lucrative and nobody gives a fuck where you learn to code. You, you, yeah. you apply to a company, they give you a test. You, you pass that test. That's it. We know you can code. End of story. Yeah, that's 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 one thing I wish I took more. Like I took code for one semester when I was in university, and like looking back on it now, I wish I did it longer because it, it was like it was interesting. But like yeah. at the time, I you know I didn't know that it was going to be this big of a thing, right? So nobody did, man. I I got into the wrong program at the wrong time. I got into anim traditional animation, hand drawn, in mm -hmm. Sheridan College. So Sheridan was the best school at that time, and they um like Disney kind of recruited from them. My, my second year, towards the end of my second year, Disney was like, yeah, we're shutting the doors. We're going 3D fucking Toy Story. And uh, we're, we're not going to be drawing anymore. So I, I had the choice of starting over again, learning 3D animation or just do something else. And I was like, I, I can't do more of this thing. Like, yeah, that's a pain. And, uh, and like, I just wish I got into code coding because um, I was kind of lost a little bit for after that. I was jumping around jobs and I ended up at Brinks. But, um, but yeah, like if I got into code back then, that was 2000 two to 2004, no, two, 2004, right? So that was like, I would have been like an OG coder by now. I might be like, you know, some mid-level yeah. manager at Google or some shit. <laughs> or you could have been the guy that made Flappy Bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Holy yeah. shit, I could have been one of the first app developers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I no. think, um, want to wrap it up from here? Yeah, I think we're good. I don't know how long we've been on, but it feels like a while. <laughs> I, I want to leave one message. I think um, that seems to be the theme of this episode is like, per, there's, there's there's a lot of benefit to being prepared and anticipating the future and like just put a lot more thought into into your actions whether it's budgeting your money or your career yeah for sure yeah just be smart and you know don't buy uh, too many expensive holidays if you can't afford it <laughs> <laughs> all right youtubers have a good one see you again